It is a, a glorious day. It's a day of celebration. Um, but it would be inappropriate of me not to talk a little bit about what's happened this morning. Uh, at least six explosions have uh, been targeting Easter services in Sri Lanka. So far, there's at least 137 dead. And we know there are many more injured and that that death toll is likely to go up quite considerably. But because it's Easter Sunday, there is great hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead, it's not the end for these people. Because they've put their hope in Jesus, they're not without hope. Even if they are people who have lost people close to them, if they're injured and their lives are dramatically changed, they're not without hope. We can be sure and certain of their new and eternal life in Jesus. So for those of us who are Christians, Easter is not just a festival. It's not just a celebratory day. It is the defining moment of our faith. Jesus is alive and he's given us new life. But if he wasn't alive, then there would be no hope. Just before Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, he says to one of Lazarus's sisters, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. There was a miracle that happened after that when Lazarus is raised from the dead. And that miracle wasn't just about Lazarus. It wasn't just about the miracle. It was a miracle that pointed to an even greater miracle, the miracle of all miracles that Jesus rose again from the dead. See, Lazarus came out of the grave covered in bandages. And he, he, he smelled. So the Bible says he was smelly. But when Jesus rose from the dead, his, his grave clothes were neatly stacked to the side. And the fragrance of Christ, this new life in Jesus, came out of the grave. So Lazarus was going to die again. Poor guy had to die twice. But Jesus was never going to die again. Jesus was alive forevermore. Jesus is alive forevermore. And because of that, we can say to the believers in Sri Lanka, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We can say to the believers in Sri Lanka, you're not without hope. And it's not glib. It's not just some token. It's that Jesus truly is alive and he is the first fruits of new life. And if he's the first fruits of new life, that means that those guys who have put their faith in him are guaranteed to live eternally with him. To get wrapped up in this new life that he has bought for them. The whole of Christianity is hinged on whether Jesus was a resurrection in life or not. There's an 18th century preacher from Aberdeen. He said this, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, he was himself deluded and self-deluded, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. I'll say it again. Christ either, number one, was deceived by mankind by conscious fraud, he's a fraudster, or two, he was himself deluded or self-deceived, or three, he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. So we have a decision to make. Which one was he? C.S. Lewis later developed a more memorable way of saying it. Jesus is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. 
And we need to decide this morning. Maybe you're somebody who's not made that decision yet of what he is. Of whether he rose from the dead or not. You have to decide. What was it? There is no way of getting out of this trial, am I? He was one of those three things. Did he rise from the dead on that very first Easter Sunday? If he rose from the dead, everything has changed. Everything is different. Jesus is vindicated by absolute... Everything that Jesus said, he's vindicated for everything that he said. Absolutely everything. But if not, he was a fraudster or a lunatic. Christianity lives or dies by the reality of the resurrection. It's a miracle of all miracles. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to chapter 20 in John's Gospel. And we'll read the account of that first Easter Sunday. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll go all the way through to verse 18. Early on the first week, uh, first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped round Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she said to them that he had said these things to her. Father, thank you so much that we can stand today in the sure and certain hope that Jesus is alive. Take our hearts this morning, Lord, and and move in us moving us miraculously, cause our hearts to rise as we see something more of you, Jesus, our risen King. You are gloriously majestic, 
seated in the highest heavens and yet you draw close yet you were willing to die for us and when you rose on high you proved that death was defeated sin was defeated that we could know you forever you became our high priest and welcomed us into your presence you welcomed us as God's sons and daughters glory be to you God on this Easter Sunday Amen. So the first thing we've got to find out is, did this actually happen? Now, we are continuing in our series, Miracles, and this is the miracle of all miracles. This miracle is the miracle upon which everything hinges upon. And so we've got to work out, did this actually happen? When the Sabbath dawns after Jesus' death and burial, all the evidence at that moment suggests that the disciples have given up hope. They think he has gone forever. Death has swallowed him up, just like everybody else who has died. On the Sunday morning, Mary and Martha head down to the tomb, and they discover it's empty. The linen and the cloth are neatly folded in a corner. Jesus has gone. Now, their immediate reaction isn't, Oh, I remember what he said. He said he'd rise three days later. Yes, on the third day he would rise This is it. Jesus is alive. That wasn't the reaction. Instead, Mary asked, who took the body? Where is it? Who's stolen him? She then ran back to the disciples and they said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. John and Peter ran down. Peter, of course, ran straight in. He's always the keen bean. Straight in there. John, kind of a little bit hesitant, waited behind And eventually they all went in and and John records they believed. But it isn't that they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead at that stage. They are still cynical. They are still sceptical. Is Jesus alive? That's not even a question that they're asking yet. They're asking, where's his body? Who's stolen his body? Luke records these words seemed to them an idle tale. That he would be alive when when Mary actually does encounter Jesus and runs back to them and tells them the good news, the first telling of the gospel by this faithful woman. She comes to him, says, he's alive, I've seen him, I've met him, Jesus is alive. And they say, it's an idle tale. And I think it's important that we say that because we need to notice that In those days, in the first century Palestine, it was just as unlikely that somebody would rise from the dead. It was just as startling to them that that claim would be made. And I think sometimes in our culture, we can look back through time and have this, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we think that, oh, they were just kind of mystic people back then. They just had this these weird views, and and so that's probably why the resurrection story spread. It was being easier to spread it back then. No, they're just as cynical. They're just as sceptical. So we mustn't look back on biblical stories like this and and expect that just because people lived in a different era that they would somehow be more accepting of something like this. We've We've got to see that Jesus died by brutal executioners. 
witnessed by hundreds if not thousands of people buried in a sealed tomb and then suddenly rising from the dead out of the grave was always a crazy idea, a crazy miracle. So despite being witness to Jesus' miracles, they are still incredulous to why this corpse was not there. Now the accounts we have of Jesus' resurrection are not mystic stories written hundreds of years later, but are actually eyewitness accounts. So this is historical material that we're dealing with. We're not dealing with some story written hundreds of years later. That is not the case. We have evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There are 6,000 manuscripts or part manuscripts of the New Testament which all hinged on this one issue. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if you were to take non-Bible manuscripts, you could actually piece every single word of the New Testament together just by quotation from those (coughs) manuscripts. And so we're, we're dealing with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents talking about who Jesus is and depending on the fact that he'd risen from the dead. So although our culture likes to imagine this is just a bunch of myths and stories and fables, that just doesn't stand up historically. We have to address that. That's the easy excuse. Oh, back then, back then. No. Let's analyse the evidence. Let's look at what is, what is written. These are written by eyewitnesses in real places about real people and real events. And there's more historical evidence for its accuracy than any other ancient story that we can uh, that we can look at so rather than say it didn't happen modern historians believers or not have been debating for years what mary first articulated who took his body so almost every historian is in agreement that jesus lived he died and that his body was missing from the grave. And so the question is not, did he live? The question is not, did he exist? The question is not, oh, did he then have his, um, was the tomb empty or not? The question is, did he actually rise from the dead or did somebody steal his body? All of Jerusalem is talking about this. There's a compilation of early Jewish writings called the Toldeth Jeshu. So that acknowledged the tomb was empty and they just in it they try and explain it away and their main argument the Jewish main argument at the time was that his body had been stolen by the disciples and we also know that there was a second century debate that took place between a Jew and a Christian and in that still the the debate was about whether his body had been stolen or whether he had been resurrected from the dead whatever way you look at this Jesus lived claimed to be the resurrection and the life, was crucified on a Roman cross, and his body was no longer on the tomb in the tomb on Sunday. Eric Metaxas writes in his book Miracles, on those points there is almost zero doubt. The doubt only comes in on how Jesus left the tomb. When the church was first born at Pentecost, in Jerusalem, same place that he was to have risen from the dead, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus on that day. They would have had to have been sure that he'd risen from the dead. It's the basis on which they put their faith in Jesus is that he's still alive. And then what we have to see is that the whole of Jerusalem is talking about this thing 
not as uh, was the tomb empty, but did he rise from the dead or not? In Matthew 28, we see that the main argument from the skeptics was still, was Jesus' body stolen? So we've got to answer that question. Could the body of Jesus have been stolen by the disciples? Now, according to the eyewitnesses, the, the Romans had put a seal on the tomb. Now, a seal is not just, a, 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 you know, like a police cordon, okay? It's a bit more serious than that. It's actually written into the law. So if when you, you put a seal on the tomb, on any tomb, what you would do is you would get wax, and you would put this wax and this cord across the tomb, and if the cord breaks or the cord comes away from the wax, then you would know it had been broken. And so they would have put this in and put a Roman seal on it. And when they put that Roman seal on it, it's, it's put into Roman law. Now, you don't want to mess with the Romans, right? And so when it's put into Roman law, don't go into this tomb. The Romans have decided that you should not touch this. That's pretty serious. You're looking at death if you mess with that. Okay? And then they decided what they would do was put a guard on to, a Roman guard onto the tomb. Now a Roman guard wasn't just one guard. It wasn't just one guy standing there with a sword. It was actually 16 guards and they would take turns. So four guards, every time there's a, an official Roman guard, there's four guards standing in the middle of a circle and then 12 of them sit round those four guards and then the other, when these four guards have finished their shift, and they're, you know, they're looking, they're back to back, they're looking at every single angle. And they're all kitted out, ready for whatever's coming their way. They then swap in with another four. And then they keep going and they keep going and they keep going and they keep swapping in, swapping in, swapping in. It was a serious thing. Now these Romans, if they were to neglect their duties, these Roman soldiers, they too would have been put to death. The Romans didn't mess about anyone who wanted to challenge Rome would be in serious body. And then we have the disciples. These disciples from Galilee weren't from money, weren't from power, weren't educated, didn't have access to the places of power in Rome, didn't, or through the Romans. They didn't have access to places of power even in Jewish circles. And so for us to expect that the disciples have managed to somehow steal Jesus' body is just ludicrous. That all the evidence points to the fact that Jesus must have risen from the dead because there is no way that the disciples could have got in there and have stolen Jesus' body. Now, what we also have to realise is that for the disciples to do that, they're putting their lives at risk. We know that every single disciple, bar one, was killed for their faith. And they knew that if they were to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and declare him as Messiah and say that he'd risen from the dead, that they'd be in trouble. There's no get away from it. If they said, if they decided what we're going to do is we're going to steal his body, let's say they managed to do it, even though it seems impossible. We're going to steal his body, we're going to hide it somewhere and uh, we're going to get rid of this body and then we're going to claim that he rose from the dead. 
for them to do that, they'd have been risking their own lives. And in the preceding years, none of them breaks their story. Not even under torture. Not even when they're about to be crucified or beaten to death or plunged with a spear. Not one of them. They had to be entirely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. Surely. So I don't think it's possible in the slightest that the disciples stole his body. It just isn't conceivable. The one that gets me is James, brother of Jesus. He had to believe that his righteousness was given to him, which meant that he could have access to God and live forever in God's everlasting kingdom through Jesus, his brother. Now, think about your siblings. Those of you who have got siblings, think back to those early years. Can you think of any reason as to why you would not believe your brother or sister if they were suddenly to say, I'm the Messiah. I'm perfect. Depend on me for your righteousness. Any moment of anger where they've kicked you in the shins, any time that they've stolen your toy or taken something from you that they shouldn't have, any little act of disobedience that you know would be a sin, any act of selfishness. I mean, come on. James would have had to be entirely convinced that Jesus hadn't sinned for him to believe that he was the resurrection and the life, to place trust in Jesus and to follow after him with all his heart. Even the group's biggest skeptic believed Thomas touched Jesus' scars. Jesus said, stop doubting and believe. Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. The evidence suggests that the disciples were entirely convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And no one else had a motive. The Romans didn't have a motive. They wanted this whole episode behind them. The Jews didn't have a motive. That's why they wanted him to be put to death to to prove that he wasn't the Messiah. No one else had a motive, only the disciples, and it seems impossible for them to have made that work. The tomb was found to be empty. But perhaps you think he didn't really die. He only seemed to die. And then he trapped on the big stone for the soldiers to let him out. Here's what we know about, the, about crucifixion in the first century, okay? After a severe beating and, a, and whipping in which uh, they would put all sorts of uh, different things into those whips that would pull your flesh from your bones. It was brutal. So that's why Jesus collapsed even before he got to the cross. They would then go to the cross. They were supposed to carry their own cross. We know that Jesus couldn't get his up the hill because he'd been beaten so badly. And then seven-inch Nails are hammered into their wrists and into their ankles. The nails would often sever the median nerve, which Lindsay says would be very beautiful. You were nailed in place so that your legs were at 45 degrees. Eventually, they would give way. You would be trying to hold yourself up on these nails. 
when they give way, that the weight would transfer to your arms, and eventually they would give way, and your, your shoulders and your elbows would pop out of joint. It is the most brutal of executions. You're no longer able to support yourself, and your chest now bears all your weight. And so you asphyxiate, you suffocate, you die. The Roman procedure for making sure death had taken place was thorough. They would break your legs if they wanted it to be done, which is what they did to the criminals on either side. But they were so certain that Jesus was already dead, they didn't do that, and they, they plunged a spear into his side. And this water and blood came out to show that there had been heart failure. So we know that he had, he had died. The disciples and the rest of Jesus' followers put their lives in the line to say that Jesus did rise from the dead. When Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, some distance from Jerusalem, about 20 years after, maybe some of the Corinthian believers are, are starting to doubt that he really rise from the dead. Jesus said, no, no, he appeared to more than 500 people at once. And most of them are still alive. So if you want to find out, why don't you come with me? We'll speak to at least the 251 people who will be able to tell you they saw him alive after having seen his crucifixion. This inescapable death. The swoon theory, which is the theory that he didn't actually die, is written off by almost every historian just as an impossibility. So did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, it seems the most plausible thing when we look back at what happened. But if it did happen, so what? So what for you? So what if it's true? 20 years ago, if I were to stand up and I was able to prove to you that Jesus really had risen from the dead, then you would think, yeah, it's true and, and, and I should put my trust in Jesus. But actually today, there's a lot more of us who would be thinking more along the lines of, well, that, that might be good for you and that may even be true. But I want to live my life this way and this is the way that I want to think about life and this is the, the religion I want to follow or this is the way of life that, that I want to go. Even though, you know, it's true. It makes no sense. But pluralism doesn't make much sense. And, but it's just become an accepted part of society. I kind of, well, if it's good for you, it's good for you. It's not for me. The problem with that is that Jesus actually says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we say the resurrection happened, we must also say that he is the life, the way to life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, the one who was preeminent in the beginning, who made all things, the one who will live forever and we can put our trust in and we can live forever with him. If he's the resurrection, he's all those things. He's the reason you breathe. He's the reason you're here. And so if we answer the question to the resurrection, that he really did rise from the dead, 
then we also should put our trust in Jesus. It makes no sense not to. There are a number of things that the resurrection proves to us about our faith in Jesus. So I'm just going to run through a few. We'll see how, how long we've got for each, okay? So first this, first is this one. We have victory over death. Death is defeated. If you know and you trust Jesus, even death cannot beat you. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, came to Glasgow and thousands of people rushed forward to be saved. He said this, one day you'll hear that Billy Graham has died. Don't you believe it? On that day, I'll be more alive than ever before. I've just changed address. Churches in Sri Lanka. For the estimated 5,000 people who will be martyred this year for their faith in Jesus around the world, and those under persecution around the world today, we can say this to them. Jesus is your first fruits. Jesus rose again from the dead and he's led the way to new life. New life that is everlasting. You can put your trust in him. Jesus is alive. You no longer need to fear death. You are redeemed. Yeah, our sins were paid for on the Friday. If you're sharp theologically thinking, well, no, no, that's the Friday. Yeah, God himself paying the price that we could never pay by this brutal execution and, and standing in our place and taking the punishment that, that we deserved. He paid the ransom. But without Jesus rising again on the third day, we could not know that righteousness that has been transferred to us has come into our bank account. It's now there. We know it. We've seen it. He, his resurrection is the evidence that when he swapped his righteousness from my sin, he actually came through and did it. That he truly was holy, righteous. Holy, holy, holy. And died in my place and placed his righteousness on me. Because he rose again from the dead... I know that the righteous one for us, the, the sinful ones, has paid the ultimate cost. The great exchange has taken place. We were sinners, and now we're saints. Like James, the brother of Jesus, trust in Jesus for your righteousness. Jesus is alive. Now walk freely in your robes of righteousness. We are made sons and daughters. Jesus is a great high priest. He is the one who gives us access to the Father. The curtain tore in two in the temple while he breathed his last. That great divide has gone. We can go to our Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus poured out on the day of Pentecost from on high. We know that we can cry out, Abba, Father, that we can walk with God, that we can have a relationship with him. And we only know that it's true and it's only possible because Jesus rose again from the dead and then ascended on high and poured out his Holy Spirit upon his church. And today we dwell with God. God is here. You can enjoy a relationship with him. One of my favorite authors is a pastor who is no longer with us called J.I. Packer. In his classic book, Knowing God, he says this. 
If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Jesus is alive. Let's receive his invitation to know our Father, our, our Daddy in heaven, as his beloved sons and daughters. We have new life. The resurrection has happened. We have new life. The Easter story doesn't just mean that your sins are forgiven. You're not just freed from something, but you're freed into something. You're freed so that you can now have life in all of its freedom. And life in all of its freedom is to be found in righteousness. It's to be found in being Christ-like. And so we've been given this new identity, a new identity that we've to live out as his beloved children. As his people, as the family of God, as the, as the church. Jesus rose from the dead. He's truly Lord. And if he's truly Lord, the question that we should be asking ourselves when it comes to obedience and what the Bible says is not, do I like what it says or not? It's, how can I live according to this new life under his lordship? How do I submit to his lordship? How do I be his servant? And actually, that's the most freeing place on the planet because that's what you're designed to do. The more that we discover what it's like to be Christ-like, the more we discover what it's like to be truly human. The more we discover freedom. The more that we are constrained to Christ, enslaved to Christ, as the Bible says, the more we are free. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus is alive, so enjoy the new you. We will receive resurrection bodies. If Jesus is alive, we will receive resurrection bodies. New bodies. Like Christ's. 1 Corinthians 15 helps us to see that we have to encourage one another with these words. The destination of all humanity is resurrection. Resurrection to life and not to condemnation. But it's, it goes on to say we too will have resurrection bodies. Resurrection existence is the first fruit of what we see when Jesus rises from the dead. But one day we will all rise, gathered together from, from dust. We'll have our resurrection bodies. And that is such good news. Yeah. I am... Um, Picked up a, a couple of injuries playing rugby. It's annoying because I'd like to run around. But I struggle. I can't run around as much as I would like to. Now that's quite trivial compared to what a lot of people suffer with. But I can't wait for my resurrection body. I'll be able to run as fast as I like and it won't hurt. I'll be able to do what I'm made to do with my body. We aren't just saved by, it's not just our souls that are saved, it's not just our spirits that are saved, it is all of us, every part of us. And one day, 
We will get to be in a new creation with new resurrection bodies when God makes all things right. You remember at the end of the creation account, it says that everything is very good. That's not the case today. That's why we have to talk about suffering. That's why we have to talk about what happened in these Sri Lankan churches. But not to, not to be too brutal. But I think it's important to say, those explosions, when they've killed these people, their bodies will be torn apart. Those bodies will be remade. Those bodies will be resurrection bodies. Those bodies will be perfectly used as they were made to be used. Redeemed by God. I had the privilege of leading a funeral, a, serv- a funeral service a couple of weeks ago um, for Darren's gran. And as part of it, uh, like I've done in previous funerals, it, we did a committal of the person's physical body. Not just her soul, but her flesh and her bones. Part of it said this, For as much as it has pleased Almighty God of his great mercy to receive to himself the soul of our sister here departed, We therefore commit her body to be consumed, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our earthly body, that it may be like his glorious body, according to the mighty working, whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Some of us will suffer cancer. Some of us will die of heart failure. Some might be involved in an accident. Some of us will bear arthritis for years. Some will get dementia. But all of us who have put our trust in the resurrection life of Jesus will have fully functioning minds, fully functioning bodies, fully functioning joints, fully functioning everything. Because Jesus is our first fruits. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your Jew is a Jew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Jesus is alive. Look forward to your perfect body. We join in the mission of God. Last one. Acts ten forty one says this. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The church is chosen to be witnesses of his resurrection. Mary went straight to the disciples. I have seen the Lord. Maybe when you became a Christian, you had that same enthusiasm. I have seen the Lord. I know that he's alive. I've become a Christian, but What often happens is we start to slow down with our enthusiasm as the reaction isn't as maybe what we want it to be. Can I just encourage you this morning? Keep doing it. I had a conversation with someone in Cafenero the other day. And the first part of the conversation I thought had gone terribly. We started talking about suffering and I just fluffed it. Totally fluffed it. 20 minutes later, they come back. I want to find out more about what it means to start a new church. Can we like have some more conversations about that? Brilliant. Yes, we can. Guys, I want to encourage you that God is at work. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And we're being wrapped up 
and his mission now as witnesses. And, and actually, where our problem is as a church isn't that people aren't responding, it's that we're not telling people about this great and wonderful good news about Jesus. So let's go and tell people about Jesus in Glasgow today, tomorrow, this week. Let's take our opportunities. Let's pray for opportunities. It can be difficult. Just encourage you to be bold. Even when you fluff it, God's pleased with you. Keep going. <clears throat> At the end of the Gospel of John, there's this curious story. And uh, it's just before Jesus appears um, to help uh, to have a barbecue of fish with some of his disciples. And they all go fishing together, these disciples. And there's, there's something so deliberate about the way that John writes it. It's all about togetherness. He wants, he wants us to see that they do this together. And so actually you're not called to be witnesses on your own. You're called to be witnesses as part of the church. We need to help one another. So let me just read uh, that portion at the end of John. It says, Afterwards Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, said Simon Peter. And he said, we'll go with you. You see that? Together, we'll go with you, naming them all that they're together. It, it just it seems maybe a bit random that it's there. But it's not random. Because the, the story is that then Jesus goes full circle back to their calling. And he says, toss the nets out on the other side. And so they do. And they pull up this great haul of fish. And their memories would be going back to, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's the symbolism there. And he'd be saying the same things to us today. I'm alive. Jesus says, I'm alive. And I want you to be witnesses. I want you to be fishers of men. And so together, you're all together. Notice you're together. Cast out your nets on the other side. Go fishing together. We need to work this out in community. Our society wants to do everything individually. So we're called to do it in community. So that's one of the main reasons we are starting Grace Communities. So in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have Grace Communities, two in the West End to begin with, one in the South Side. We aim to have one in the northeast by autumn. Pray for that. And I'm praying that we'd have one more somewhere else too. Because I want us to make an impact together, on mission together, helping one another to proclaim this good news that Mary first proclaimed, that Jesus is alive. The resurrection, did it happen? Yes. Glory to God. Jesus is alive. It happened. And when Thomas touched Jesus' scars and he said, My Lord and my God, we too have evidence. We too can say, My Lord and my God, Jesus, you are alive. And it changes everything. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are alive. That death did not hold you down. That Jesus, you defeated the grave. You defeated the powers of man, the powers of Satan. You are the champion of heaven. You reign majestically above all things. And yet you love us. You're close, close to us. You give us access to our Father. 
Now we can cry out, Hallelujah, Abba, Father, glory be to our God who we can know today. Jesus, help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to see the truth. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room who's, who's thinking, I don't know, I don't know, I just don't know if I believe this or not, Lord, would you come and just pierce their heart? Would you tell them, would you reveal to them, I'm alive and I love you. And Lord, would you help us who have already put our faith in you to, to be witnesses, to be people who want to witness this glorious resurrection life to the people around us. Give us boldness and courage by your spirit. Come, Lord, we pray and do that as we worship your holy name on this glorious Easter Sunday. Amen.